This film is lit, the podcast where we finally settle the score on one simple question. Is the book really better than the movie? I'm Brian, and I have a film degree, so I watch the movie, but don't read the book. And I'm Katie. I have an English degree, so I do things the right way and read the book before we watch the movie. So prepare to be wowed by our expertise and charm as we dissect all of your favorite film adaptations and decide if the silver screen or the written word did it better. So turn it up, settle in, and get ready for spoilers, because this film is lit. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. It's the Lorax, and this film is lit. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We have a nice full show. It won't be super long, but we do have every one of our segments. So we're just going to jump right into it with Let Me Sum Up. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. If you have not read or watched The Lorax recently, here is our spoiler-filled summary of The Lorax, the book. A young boy goes to visit the mysterious Onceler who lives at the edge of a polluted town. The Onceler tells him about how when he came to that area, it was a beautiful forest of truffula trees. He chopped down one of the trees to make a thneed, causing the Lorax, the protector of the forest, to appear. The Lorax implored the Onceler to stop on behalf of the trees and the animals who depended on them for survival, but when the, when the Onceler's need became popular, he started a massive business to sell them. The land became more and more polluted, and the Lorax had to send all of the animals away, but the Onceler refused to change his ways, seeing only his business's success and his growing wealth. Eventually, the last truffula tree is chopped down. Without that natural resource, the Onceler cannot make the needs and his business crumbles. The Lorax leaves and the Onceler isolates himself for years until the arrival of the boy makes him realize what has to happen. He gives the very last truffula seed to the boy and tells him to grow a forest so that the animals and the Lorax can someday return. All right, here is the summary for The Lorax, the movie. Sourced from Wikipedia? Yes. Okay. So credit to whoever wrote this on Wikipedia. 12-year-old Ted Wiggins lives in Thneedville, a walled city where all vegetation is artificial. Ted is infatuated with a teenage girl named Audrey and decides to impress her with a real tree, which she desperately wants to see. His grandmother tells him about the Onceler, who knows what happened to the trees. Ted leaves Thneedville and discovers that the outside world is a barren, contaminated wasteland. He finds the Onceler, who agrees to tell Ted the story of the trees over multiple visits. The next time he leaves town, Ted encounters Thneedville's greedy mayor, Alo- uh, Alo- Aloysius? Aloysius? O'Hare, whose company sells bottled oxygen. Explaining that trees and the oxygen they produce pose a threat to his business model, O'Hare intimidates Ted to stay in town, but Ted continues to visit the Onceler. The Onceler recounts how, as a young inventor, he, ca- he arrived in a lush forest of truffle trees. Upon chopping down a tree, he was confronted by the Lorax, the guardian of the forest. After attempting to force the Onceler out, the Lorax made him promise not to cut down any more trees. The Onceler used the truffula fibers to create the Thneed, a knitted garment 
with numerous uses, which became a major success. His unscrupulous relatives arrive and persuade him to resume cutting down trees to speed up production, leading to large profits, but also deforestation and pollution. After the final truffle of tree fell, the onceler was ruined and abandoned by his family. With the region uninhabitable, the Lorax sent the native animals away and vanished into the sky, leaving behind a pile of rocks etched with the word unless. The onceler gives Ted the last truffle seed and tells him to plant it and make others care about trees. Ted returns home to plant the seed, but is spotted by the uh, BioHare citywide surveillance system. Enlisting the help of Audrey and his family, Ted flees to the center of town with the seed, where O'Hare chases him and real, uh, rallies the citizens against Ted, claiming that trees are dangerous and filthy. Ted uses a bulldozer to knock down a section of the city wall, revealing the environmental desolation outside. Inspired by Ted's conviction, the crowd turns on O'Hare, whose henchmen banish him, and the seed is finally planted. As time passes, the land begins to recover, new trees sprout, animals start to return, and the elderly Onceler reunites with the Lorax. All right, there is your summary of both the book and the movie, so now you're caught up. If you haven't read or watched either of them recently... We have one. <laughs> uh, we'll see how this goes. We have one item for guess who. So let's go ahead and get to it. Who are you? No one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. Okay. I'm pretty sure you'll get this, um, I but feel I confident. I, I, I just wanted to include it because I thought it was fun. It is rare that we have a guess who for like a picture yes. book. Describe him. That's hard. I don't know if I can. He was shortish and oldish and brownish and mossy, and he spoke with a voice that was sharpish and bossy. Okay, so I'm yeah, I would say that that's the that would be the Lorax. That would be the Lorax. <laughs> <laughs> yep, pretty straightforward. But yeah, there's a description of the Lorax. Lorax, look at that. Uh, and the drawing on the cover looks—he looks exactly like he does in the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as close uh, yeah, as they, you can with a two yeah. D that style of drawing versus the movie's three D, you know, kind of bubblegum animation style. Mm -hmm. Anyways, all right, I have a handful of questions. Let's get into them all. In was that in the book? Nicholas Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone. The what? Honestly, don't you two read? So a lot of times with these picture, you know, kids stories that are expanded into feature like films, a lot of the stuff is added for the movie mm -hmm. whereas that is not in the book. So that's kind of what I want to parse out is what, you know, what of these elements came from the book or maybe were inspired by the book versus just wholly invented for the movie. Obviously, that's what what was that in the book always is. But usually in uh, in these kind of episodes, usually a lot more of the answers to my questions are no, it was not in the book. But we shall find out. So my first question is, is the story set in Thneedville, a town made of plastic with no trees? Is that the setting for our tale? So there is a town in the book. The very first line in the book is at the far end of town. And we do see a town in the background of that first picture. Okay. Um, but we never go there and the town is not named within the text. I guess it could be made of plastic, okay. but that's never confirmed. But we don't have a we don't have a setting for like some of our characters that is this artificial world no. to juxtaposed to the natural, you know, kind of mm -mm. world of the forest that has been decimated. No, not okay. at all. Um, I do think that the addition of Thneedville works in the movie. I like that it adds an additional set piece, and I think it provides some. Uh, additional commentary on the kind of specific anti-nature sentiment that tends to happen in the suburbs. Uh, suburbs are for people who think they like nature but don't. They can be. I think that's maybe a <laughs> little unfair, but 
My parents live in the suburbs and Your they parents love nature. Like nature, yes. <laughs> I'm just saying. I think it's you know. I'm talking about that the, the the grass as a good example of what I'm talking about. Right. Lawns. It is a it is a very skewed ver like um. It's a it's not shallow impression. Yes, of it's not an like a suburbs in the real world. It's not artificial in the way that Needville is in this no. movie, but it is kind of an artificial. Yeah crafted version yes. of what nature is yes for a sure. sanitized version of it if you will yes i also though think that it can be i, I, I just i think it is important because i i you know my i also understand the disdain that people have for suburbs and, and that sort of thing especially on the left i get it uh it is you know um very much a can be kind of an archetypal uh, example of <laughs> capitalism and the way it can destroy things that being said, I think it is uh, maybe not. And again, I'm not saying you were doing this, but I, I think a lot of people don't even recognize that the the sort of like. I don't want to say the harm of suburbs, but like the the again, I'm thinking of people like my parents. I don't think they're an outlier. My parents mm -hmm. love the outdoors. They spent they go camping constantly. They're huge nature recycling hippie people like they're. But they also like the suburbs, like they like having a lawn. And yeah. I think there is maybe like, <laughs> I'm not saying, I think it's good. I think we, I think raising awareness and being like, hey, like, you know, it's actually super, not super uh, environmentally friendly to maintain a, like a, a, lawn, a, a large lawn of, you know, um, one of monocultural grass or whatever. Like, yeah. that's not a great thing. I think that is a good thing to, to inform people of. But I think it's. I think it's important to remember that a lot of people, it, it is an ignorance thing versus like a malicious thing. And again, I'm not saying you were implying that. Yeah, no, I agree. Thing. But yeah, I think I think sometimes, especially people of our political bent, can be a little dismissive and like judgy. In a, of that, just in general, that's kind of the the what we do on the left. But um, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm guilty of it myself. But I'm just saying, I think that is one of those things that you kind of have to. I don't know. Try to educate as it's opposed to judge. Nuanced. It's yeah. complicated, as most things. Sure, are. as most things are, and I'm not trying to overly, you know, centrist post, but I'm just saying <laughs> that, like, yeah. Anyways, so my next question uh, is: I want to know, and I this is one I assume is probably not in the book. If anything of this plot with Ted and Audrey comes from the book, uh, because basically the big setup here is Ted has this crush on this girl Audrey. And he is she, he, he, he like crashes a, a remote control plane in her yard one day and they're talking and she's like, oh, I wish he, she paints this big mural of trees on her back of her house. And she's like, I wish I would love to see a tree. I'm obsessed with trees and there's no trees anywhere anymore. And he's like, what's a tree? Blah, blah, blah. And then so he wants to find a tree for her to like impress her. Uh, and I want to know if any of this, that whole plot came from the mm -hmm. book, because to me, that felt very much like a movie thing from my memory i have read the lorex obviously yes. <laughs> as a child but it's been over two decades probably so ted is technically in the book he's just not named but the character that we see go to talk to the onceler is a young boy character design looks a lot like ted's character design in the movie audrey is not in the book at all she's a movie edition um, so ted doesn't have the motivation of trying to get a tree to impress her in right. the book Overall, though, I like that as an explanation for why he even goes to see the Onesler in the first place. It feels like the kind of dumb thing that a kid mm -hmm. would do, yeah. um, like especially when he's fantasizing about how she's going to fall in love with him when she sees this tree that he's gotten for her. Yeah. 
Now, the book, I don't think, needs an no. explanation for why he goes to see the Onesler, but I do think that the expanded frame narrative of the movie does. If you're going to make it into an 80-minute movie, you have to add more meat to yep. it, and yeah. this is not the worst way to have him no. venture forth into the world to try to find a tree. Um, I also thought, as is like a side note, I, I assume they're supposed to be around the same age, but but Audrey in the movie is like gigantic, and when She's I was watching the trailer, him, yeah. I was like... At first, I thought she was like a 20 year old and he was like a kid <laughs> and he was like trying to. Woo, and I was like, what is happening? And then I'm like, OK, I, I assume what's going on here is that they're supposed to be around the same age, uh, but that she's like gigantic because girls go through puberty, tend mm -hmm. to go through puberty first and, you know, like get taller yeah. earlier than yeah, boys. Yeah. And maybe he's like, you know, they're both around like 12 or 13 and she's just a lot bigger than him or something. But then later we find out she's in high school and I assume he's in middle school. Like, I don't know. I was yeah. just trying to figure out. I don't know. I thought it was interesting. Weird. I thought maybe. the same thing at first about that. Like, maybe she they were just depicting that she's gone through puberty already and he has not. According to Wikipedia, Ted is 12. Oh, so okay. she's, she's at least like two to three years older if she's like bare minimum. Right. If yeah. she's like a high school freshman, she's, she's either 14, 14 or 15. Probably. Yeah. Um, I was I was a little bummed um, because I feel like you don't often see movies portray that aspect of puberty unless it's like a one off joke. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because there that... is that like there is that that period of time in like middle school and early high school when all of the girls are like a foot taller. It can, yes, or a lot of times. A lot yeah. of times. I, I would yeah. say I was always the tallest kid in my like one of the you're, tallest. You're kids. an outlier and but should yes. not have been but, counted. Yes, I, I I am I am yeah definitely an outlier in the statistics. But yeah. I it is um yeah it is not something you see normally and so i assumed that was what was going on here is that they were roughly the same age and i mean i guess they are roughly the same age not that much older than yeah. him but enough older that she has definitely gone through puberty and he has or is, is going through it and he is maybe not quite yet potentially mm -hmm. or he's just a short king who knows i don't know <laughs> Uh, so he he needs to figure out where he can find a tree. So he's talking to his, his mom and his grandma about it. Her grandma lives with them, it would appear. Uh, and his mom explains that the onceler knows what happens to the trees. And I was wondering if this 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 sort of um, quest giving <laughs> came from the book uh, of this wise older person being like the onceler knows and that sending him on his journey. Again, I, similar to the story with the with the girl and, and wooing her. I assume that's not. Because from my memory, the book didn't really have a narrative like that. But if that's the case, what what is if if this isn't how he kind of goes on this journey in the book? What it what is it then that sets him off to meet the Onceler? I guess. Assuming it doesn't have the setup. So there's really nothing that sets him off to meet the Onceler in the book. The book starts in media res uh, with the boy going to see the Onceler, like walking down the road towards the Onceler's house. Um, and then that frame narrative gives way to the center narrative, which is basically the part of the movie that features the Lorax. Mm -hmm. So the book and the movie are structured similarly in that way. And then the movie really expands out the frame story right. with a lot of like new characters and stuff. Yeah, I would say that the book does have a narrative. It fully tells the story of the Onceler and the Lorax okay. from start to finish. Um, it's just the frame story is not as meaty. In the book. Um, and, and I think the the decision to expand on the frame story in the movie makes a lot of sense. I don't think that the movie's version of it always works 100%, but I right. think it is serviceable. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, is, do we get any of the Onceler's backstory in the book? So in the movie, we find out that he, he, he like a little bit about, not a ton, but a little mm-hmm. bit about his backstory as he's telling his story to Ted. He explains like how he was at home and his family wasn't very supportive. So he struck out on his own to go to try to like make a name for himself. And he had this idea for this invention. So he sets up camp in the woods and blah, all, all that kind of stuff. Do we find out any of that from the book? Uh, not really. We just see him arrive with his wagon and his mule and start chopping down trees. Uh, we don't get any of the movie's bits with like his family mocking him as he sets out to seek his fortune. OK, I, I assumed as much, but I just wanted to double check. Uh, so speaking of his, seeking his fortune, his idea for this is the Thneed which is this miraculous invention. Initially, we not, aren't sure what it's going to be. It's he's like, it's this thing that does everything. Uh, and then eventually he uh, he makes it and he uses the the fuzz stuff on top of the the trees, the truffula trees or however you pronounce it to create this thing, uh, which is like a scarf. It's like a, it's like a it's like a cloth. It's some sort of garment. Mm-hmm. But that also he says you can you can clean up messes with it like that does everything obviously intentionally silly but i want to know if the thneed comes from the book uh and if it is this miraculous invention that does everything and if so is that the thing that leads to the forest being cut down he does make a thneed in the book uh, and it is described as a thing that can be anything you need um and it does eventually lead to the total destruction of the truffula tree forest do we see it in the book is you it similar at all to like is it a garment yeah. is it you know what yeah, i mean like is it, it looks like let me find the picture here looks like um it looks kind of like a thin sweater scarf thing with multiple arms okay yeah that's exactly what the movie is then yeah so it is so like that's the, the best picture of it yeah that's okay that's yeah. exactly basically what it looks like in the movie mm-hmm. essentially okay that, and that's what i was wondering i i, I couldn't remember so cool uh, so then is the Lorax summoned by the Onceler chopping down a tree? So he needs to make his need, his need. So he chops down a tree and it's the first tree chops down. The Lorax just boom appears. And from my memory, the Lorax was just like another one of the animals in the book who just kind of like shows up and is like, hey, man, what are you doing? Uh, and I don't recall him like coming down from on high. But is that <laughs> what happens in the book? I would say that this is something the movie like loosely nails okay the lorax does pop out of the tree stump um and it says i am the lorax i speak for the trees i I knew that line came um there's nothing with the like like thunder and lightning and and like right the (laughs) the 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 majesty on high kind of thing does he do the thing because i this i have a memory of this where and and it looks particularly silly in the movie but like at the end i don't think this is how he shows up originally i can't recall but at the end when he leaves and then comes back he does this thing where he like grabs his butt and lifts it (laughs) and he flies Uh uh-huh i have a memory of that imagery from the book is that anything yeah um is that like what it or do you have a note about it later sorry i don't I, I do, but that's fine. I, I um, just because I, I couldn't remember if that's how he shows up the first time. And I didn't think it was. I think it's only a thing he does later. Yeah. The Lorax said nothing. Just gave me a glance. Just gave me a very sad, sad backward glance as he lifted himself by the seat of his pants. Mm. And I'll never forget the grim look on his face when he heisted himself and took leave of this place through a hole in the smog without leaving a trace okay and there he is so yeah flying away by the seat of his pants yeah okay so that is exactly how when he yeah. leaves that is what yeah, okay yeah. okay yeah i didn't have that in here but i, I or as a question but i 
I meant to I meant to have it because I was like that I have a memory of that <laughs> like that strike <laughs> that's bouncing around somewhere in my brain. It's also such a specific thing that yeah. you would you would have to assume it came from the book and because like why else would somebody come up with that? It's such a weird detail. But yeah. Uh, so speaking of the tree that he chopped down, after he chops it down, the Lorax and the other animals have like a little funeral for the tree where they like put rocks around it and stuff. And I wanted to know if that was in the book. So it's a cute scene. It is not from the book, but I did really like this scene. I thought it was very sweet. I also liked that the movie showed it again at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's is it is it not the same place where the unless stone is or is it a different because it has that ring of stones. I think it's different. Okay, I felt like it was different too, but it would make sense for it to have been it, yeah. the same place. But I think you're right. I think it is a different ring of stones that says unless. <laughs> Does the Lorax threaten to curse the Onceler if he doesn't leave the forest? Because I thought that was going to go somewhere, and I had this memory that like maybe that's why the the onceler in the current time looks kind of like he does is that maybe mm-hmm. he does end up cursing him or something but that doesn't actually really go anywhere he doesn't curse him seemingly other than like he doesn't like magically curse him it doesn't yeah. seem like he, he just uh one, the onceler reaps what he sows basically yeah um and and kind of you know is is cursed by his own actions uh, as opposed to something the Lorax does, and so I assumed that's not something from the book, or because again it doesn't really go anywhere, and or or if it's it's really just like a thread, it's kind of like an empty thread that ends up not really going anywhere. Anyways, does it come from the book? No, that okay. is not from the book at all. Okay, because yeah, I, it was just a little confusing because like oh I, I I felt like that was gonna mean something or yeah. like he was gonna do something and that doesn't end up happening. So I was like oh okay. Um, again, it doesn't need to go anywhere. I just thought it was kind of a strange. I was expecting it to go somewhere. Is there a billionaire in the book? I say billionaire, I assume, uh, that sells fresh air and he's like trying to hold a monopoly that is threatened by Ted's character trying to find trees again because he sells air and trees make air for free. Um, there, No, there is not. Uh, almost none percent of the frame story in the movie is, is actually from the book. Yeah, that I expected as much i did not think that was from the book but i enjoyed it when the the lorax leaves after the onceler has ruined the forest he leaves behind a stone that says unless and i feel like i had a vague memory of that from the book but i wanted to confirm does the lorax leave behind a stone that says unless that is a reminder of his warning that i read at the beginning in the <laughs> quote which whatever that was what is it uh 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 unless unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot nothing is going to get better it's not so it does he leave an unless stone yes that is another thing that the movie nails and is it it is the same idea it's like a reminder of the. Mm -hmm. because does he tell him that when he leaves the stone no it's interesting because it's but it comes but it is that is what it is referencing right i would assume yeah uh, yeah it's something that the onceler has to figure out okay I feel like the movie doesn't really go. Maybe I'm misremembering, but does the movie really cover that? I, I feel like we see the stone, but I don't recall the the once they're like pondering over it, really. Or am I, I mean, mistaken? Am I miss? There's a middle section where I got a little dozy because I was got a little bored and I'm not exactly <laughs> positive if I remembered every detail perfectly from like the very like middle third. But I. I don't think the movie really depicted him like pondering. Um, I, I can leave. I was about to say, what him. does he do in the book? With okay, it, yeah, let me let me read a, a section from this. And all that the Lorax left here in this mess was a small pile of rocks with one word 
unless. Whatever that meant, well, I just couldn't guess. That was long, long ago, but each day since that day, I've sat here and worried and worried away. Through the years, while my buildings have fallen apart, I've worried about it with all of my heart. Okay. But now, says the Onceler, now that you're here, the word of the Lorax seems perfectly clear. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. I, I think the Onceler does say that to Ted, doesn't he, in the movie? I, I'm sure he does. Sure he does. They, for did, some reason they did include that line. Yes. For some reason, I'm forgetting that scene. It must have been a moment where I just was I was either writing a note or I was just zoned out or something. But um, OK, a uh, couple more questions. Does the Onceler then give Ted a, a seed to plant to bring the trees back? Or does anyone like plant the last tree seed? Is that part of it at all? Or I assume something like that happens because we don't just mm -hmm. end with the forest forever decimated. But uh, so the book does end with the Onceler giving the boy the last trefula seed um, and tells him to plant it and then grow a forest. Uh, we don't see any of that happen oh, like we do okay. in the book, though. Uh, well, then I guess by extension, because my last question was, does the Onceler get any sort of redemption? I thought this is a pretty sweet ending in the movie where the Lorax comes back and is like, hey, you, you fixed the things you messed up. Good job. Mm -hmm. uh, does that happen at all in the book? No, um, although I, I think this is arguably something that the movie expands on a little bit. So the book ends with the Onceler giving the boy the seed, like I said, and he tells him, plant a new truffula, treat it with care. Give it clean water and feed it fresh air. Grow a forest, protect it from axes that hack. Then the Lorax and all of his friends may come back. But we don't actually see any of that happen in the book. Right. It ends with the Onceler giving him the seed. I do think that this was a sweet way to end the movie. I also think it potentially undermines the ultimate point of the book a little bit. I think the goal with the book was to put that responsibility onto the reader. Mm -hmm. Ted in the book is a nameless reader insert character, always referred to as you. Right. Right. And the book ends on this message about you being the one who can change things for the better. And the movie shows somebody else doing what you are supposed to do. And then everything is fine at the end. So you don't need to do anything. Someone else will and it'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting because I'm not sure it would be I would be a very tough sell to make a movie or be very difficult, I think, to make a movie that ended that way or, yeah. or that followed that perspective. I think the movie tries to kind of have both by giving us that quote after the movie ends, which mm -hmm. is the unless someone like I think it just doesn't. It just yeah, show it just that shows quote up again. on screen. Yeah. And so, so it tries to kind of keep that message of like you need to be the change you want to see in the world. Um, but the the book is obviously way more effective at it by by leaving that resolution un yeah kind resolved. of unresolved yeah <laughs> and, and kind of asking you to go do that and go be that change which I think works really well for a children's book like that I don't know how satisfying or or how yeah, much it would work as a yeah, movie I, maybe you know it it is something that I'm kind of of two minds about because I get why the movie makes that decision and I think it works for the movie yeah but on the other hand the literal entire point right. of this book yeah is that message yeah no no i agree i i think it is it's something that and that and that it might just come down to the difference of medium and the fact that it is just something you can do mm -hmm. in a, a book like this 
that is just maybe not possible in a movie. But I don't want to say it's not possible. I think it might be possible. It's just it would be very difficult. Yeah. And we would have to really break some <laughs> uh, movie like uh, uh, not traditions. Um, uh, you would have to break some rules about <laughs> how to make a movie mm-hmm. in order to pull that off. Again, I, I think it pop might be doable, but it would just be hard. And I think the movie, like I said, I like the ending of the movie. I think it's sweet. Um, yeah. But yeah, it definitely doesn't yeah. leave well, you as I, sort I, of motivated to change yeah. necessarily. And I think it would be really hard because of the way that the movie fleshes out the frame story. If it ended the same way that the book did, we would be leaving the entire frame story unresolved. Yeah. So you would have to do the frame story in a completely different way. Right. To make that ending even come close that's what to I'm working. Saying. That's actually what I'm saying is that I think you would have to redo the entire movie and that's what would make yeah. it so difficult is that you would almost have to do, and I I don't think this would be the only way necessarily to do it, but you might almost have to do this weird like first person perspective movie mm-hmm. where where the camera is the character is the character or something yeah it would be really strange obviously it'd be a huge leap that a major studio would never do that's something that you would have to get like a much smaller like kind of independent film to do something like that to kind of take that leap uh to take that swing but i think it and and again there's probably even another way maybe slightly more traditional uh way to do a similar thing and leave the the resolution on the audience a little bit more but I can see why the movie made the decision it does, but I, I also understand like that's a, that is a tough one because it is like mm-hmm. also like, yeah, it's kind of the whole point of the book. Yeah. And kind of why the book is so effective and why kids went home and told their logging parents that they were evil. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I, I can understand how the movie is kind of a, kind of a shortfall there, even if it is a very understandable shortfall all right those are all my questions uh that i had about things that were in the book we do have a lost in adaptation uh, so let's get into it just show me the way to get out of here and i'll be on my way was lost. yes yes and i want to get unlost as soon as possible this is not really a lost in adaptation i've decided i have made the executive decision to on lost in that when we have an episode that doesn't really have a traditional lost in adaptation which if you don't know because uh, we don't always have them, which is something we're, we're like confused about. It's messy. Sometimes that merges into was that in the book. Sometimes it doesn't. Generally, the idea with Lost in Adaptation is, hey, there's this thing in the movie that I did not understand. Maybe mm-hmm. there's more context in the book that like fleshes this out. Like, oh, OK, I get it now. Um, like if there was, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example, like maybe like in Lord of the Rings, maybe like in the movies, the whole backstory with like the sword, some of those weapons or something are like, yeah. oh, like maybe there's more of that in the book that kind of fleshes things out or, or like the ghost army at the end. You're like, wait, what's going on with the ghost army and why is Aragorn able to control them? The movie does an okay job explaining it, but like the book maybe has some more, you know, yeah. background information. That's generally what lost in adaptation is. I've decided to also hybridize it so that sometimes it's just where we discuss thematic stuff. <laughs> I don't know why. The, oh, the, the, thematic really thematic good... stuff also often gets lost in adaptation. So I think that works. True. And, and it also doesn't really have a great landing spot all the time, especially if it's something where it's like, OK, I don't know, like for you if, or whoever's doing the, you know, better in the book, better in the movie stuff. It's, sometimes that stuff doesn't always perfectly fit into one of those mm-hmm. categories. And it also feels kind of weird to shove it off into like our odds and ends segment at the end. Sometimes sometimes we do. Sometimes that feels a little strange. So I think it works anyways. Point being, this isn't really something I'm confused about, but I feel like it fits here. We talked about in the prequel that one of the producers 
specifically made the decision, uh, you know, uh, with the directors and writers and stuff to not make the Onceler like a monster, mm-hmm. which supposedly in the book, we don't, I don't think we see him correct in the book. We see his arms and his hands. Yeah. But it, it, he could be like some sort of, he could be anything. anything we don't know creature, what he looks monster, like. Whatever. But they decided to make him a human. Yeah. Explicitly. He's just a dude. Yeah. Or whatever. Maybe not a human, but whatever the, the <laughs> human like <laughs> things in this universe are. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're humans. They sure look like humans. But they made a conscious decision not to make him like some creature or monster or something because mm-hmm. they didn't want to externalize the responsibility for yeah. what we've done to the environment. And we were both like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the movie does pull that off. We're like, we'll revisit it, see if we thought the movie did a good job of it. And I really think they did because I really liked I, I didn't love this movie. Like, I thought it was OK. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did really like the message that they went for with. Uh, the Onceler and kind of critiquing capitalism and the way that uh, we have destroyed the planet. Uh, I think it goes about it in a fairly like, like well thought out uh, and like nuanced mm-hmm. um, perspective from like a very well thought out and nuanced perspective, especially for a kid's movie where it can be very easy to be like, look, the big bad villain who, because yeah, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It's literally the Onceler is not an evil guy. He's not the evil villain. The, the the millionaire guy, the billionaire guy is that kind of in this universe. But even that, we kind of find out where that came from a little bit in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever his name is, Aloysius O'Hare, O'Hare uh, the error guy. Um, he he we, he's like kind of the like, you know. Yeah, he's more of the like uh, traditional. Yeah. CEO, supervillain, supervillain kind of guy. Um, but the Onceler is, he's like literally just a guy who's like trying to strike out out on his own and start a business. And he gets so caught up in how amazing what he's doing is that he like literally does not think about the impact it's going to have that he does nothing out of malice or out of like, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, he does nothing out of malice. It is all just out of either ignorance or, uh, or, or excitement for the possibility of, what he what things could be yeah. or what what he could yeah, get out and, and of it. And I do think in both the book and the movie there is some like there's some purposeful ignorance on his yes, part. There's yes. there's definitely like purposeful ignoring of what's yes. going on around him. Absolutely. But yeah, I, I liked the the decision by the movie to to just make him a guy who gets caught up in what he's got going on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, for sure. Because like, I, and, and there's a bunch of moments throughout the movie that kind of hammer it home. But there was one scene in particular that really stuck out to me where he's like designing his factory. Mm-hmm. And this felt like such like a especially with people like Elon Musk and stuff. It was just like they're just thinking about how cool this thing could be. Yeah. And they're not thinking about what it how it could affect everything else yeah. because they're caught up. And it's the Jurassic Park line. You know, you're so caught up in whether or not you could. You didn't think stop to think whether or not you should and that's it, it's just that moment of of he's like he's got these blueprints for this cool factory and he's like man this is this is so amazing this will be so amazing and he's like he he you can tell he is he is lying himself into mm-hmm. he, he is he is because there is what you're saying there is a, a a an element of um conscious ignorance yeah. of, of lying yeah, to and himself, lying to himself about what, kind of choosing to ignore yeah what's going on what's going on and so there is yeah there is definitely and and i think that's also good because it doesn't it doesn't completely externalize his guilt and like make it like oh he's just a bumbling idiot who had no idea yes i think it really does strike that kind of perfect balance of like yeah 
like every decision he's making is somewhat understandable and reasonable and coming from a place not motivated, not even motivated necessarily by greed, but just by like wanting to, to, to produce this thing and that he thinks will be cool and help people. And like, it is all coming from a place of like genuine, uh, I would say like somewhat morally good, you know, purpose, at least to some extent, like, again, he doesn't, he does want money. He does want to yeah. make money, but it's not, he's not like, he's not, he hasn't I gotten to the point of the billion. I think it's less money and more success. Yeah. He, he wants, wants to, to be, be successful. successful and he wants to, and I think he does really like this thing and thinks it will help people. Like he's very enamored with this product he has created. He's very excited about it. Um, and I, like I said, I really just think it does kind of perfectly walk that tightrope of mm-hmm. not letting him off the hook, but also not making him like clear, like consciously a villain, because I think that is generally how these things work. I think generally the people generally the people who have ruined the planet have not done it maliciously necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, I think it is true that most people think they're doing the right thing and think they're doing good things. Obviously there are outliers there are people that, you know, just don't give a shit or whatever. Uh, and, 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 but I think, like I said, I, th- I think mostly it's people who have fooled themselves into thinking what they're doing is good or not that bad or not that bad. And that the, the, the good they're providing outweighs whatever harm they may be doing. And again, it's not like it's a a, a a genius or novel idea that this movie is presenting. It's a very yeah. straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> but I, but I think it does it very effectively yes. in a way that a lot of children's media does not do. Like yeah. a lot of children's media simplifies it down to this person's evil. They're doing this because they're evil or this person's an idiot. They don't even realize what they, like, it, you know, it goes one extreme or the other and doesn't give you kind of the nuance that this mm-hmm. movie gives you. Yeah, far more nuanced than a lot of depictions of villains in children's media. I do think that there are seeds of this in the book. Yeah. Uh, there are a few moments where the Onceler feels guilty. Um, for example, in the book, he says that he's sad when the Barbalutes, bar- Barbalutes leave. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also this like recurring refrain throughout the middle part of the narrative where he basically says, I meant no harm, but business is business and business must grow. This is true. Exponential growth. Yeah. Um, until you can't. Until you can't. I was, I was a little worried in the movie, like specifically when his family showed up and kind of like goaded him into breaking his promise about yeah. not chopping down trees. I was a little worried that the movie would totally take all of the responsibility off of him. But right. I don't but I don't think that happened. No, I think the movie handled it pretty well and ended up with something interesting. Yeah, because I do think it. Yeah, you're right. It could have very easily been like, oh, his family's the evil yeah. ones there. But I think it, even that it doesn't fall into that trap. It still keeps it. No, like it, it just in that instance, it's just kind of showing that, yes, there are people that can matter to you that might kind of influence you or you might trust people's, mm-hmm. you know, you, you might want to try to yeah, loved ones or friends or whatever. Um, you, you might do what they think is best because you think they know or, blah, blah, you know, like it, it, they influence him. But it doesn't again, it doesn't alleviate his responsibility in this. Yeah. Um, but it also doesn't. Um, yeah, it just doesn't alleviate his responsibility while still riding that line of making it him, him not being, again, an evil, <laughs> an evil, malicious uh, cartoon villain. He's just a guy who <laughs> made a lot of bad decisions that he thought were good decisions and ruined a lot of stuff. And he needs to make up for that somehow, uh, which he kind of does, at least. All right. That was all we had for Lost in Adaptation. It's time to find out what Katie thought was better in the book. You like to read? Oh, yes. I love to read. What do you like to read? A 
everything. Okay, so the first thing that I want to talk about is that I get the movie's motif with the bottles of air, but also it doesn't make sense. No, it it's dumb, but the, it is. It's... The town the town is surrounded by a wall. Yeah. Right, but it doesn't appear to be inside of a bubble. So how how are they keeping the air clean just inside the town? Shouldn't they all be wearing like air filter masks that they attach the bottles of air to? And if they need the bottled air inside their houses, wouldn't they be replacing the bottles like every three seconds? It's a fun motif, and I especially like the parallel to companies selling us fresh water. Right. But I do think that it's one of those things that falls apart if you look at it too hard. No, it definitely doesn't withstand scrutiny, but I think it works. I think it's fine. It's it's just a different, you know, they needed they wanted another version of uh, we've already gotten rid of all the trees or whatever. So we have. And who do we have that has this interest in keeping the trees from coming back? Ah, Well, trees help with air. blah blah. blah. So like, let's let's have this person who sells clean air. I think it works. Um, especially cause trees are the main focus. And I think right. like, obviously the easier version of this is somebody selling like, like clean water. If, if, but if, if the, if the main thrust of the story were something to do with like toxic o- sludge and like or, rivers yeah. or something like that, that yeah. would be, you know, like if, if it wasn't cutting down trees, but like polluting the river, then like that, that was kind of the, the narrative and, and the Lorax was there was the spoke for the rivers or whatever, then that would be, you know, the angle you would go. So I, I, I think it works. And I think, Again, I think it, I think it's fine. I, I had no problem with it. Yes, it is one of those things. It's like, yeah, it doesn't really whatever. But it, it's a, it's a, it's a doctor suit. Like it's a wacky. The creatures it. exist. Like it's a, it's a very magical universe already. So I, it wasn't something. But you that, know what? I'm here to critique. <laughs> That's fair. Um, this is like a little weird thing, but I thought the old Onesler sounded too similar to the Lorax. You're not wrong because I had a suspicion. I actually wrote it down and deleted it that I thought it was going to end up having being the Lord. I think yeah. the movie wants you to think that. Do you think that's what they're doing? Well, because I, I do wonder because I was like, because he's always hiding his face. Yeah. And he's behind and specifically like the main middle part of his face. But you can see the mustache. Yeah. But you also can tell it's not the Lorax because you can see his arms are way yeah. too like he doesn't look proportionally like the Lorax. But there is enough, and the way he's like hidden in shadow and stuff made me wonder if if they were trying to like trick. Because I actually was like, okay, is it going to end up that this person he's talking to is actually the Lorax, who is essentially like kind of like Willy Wonka style, like screening, <laughs> yeah, like waiting, for like the waiting perfect. for the perfect person to come <laughs> yeah. along to give the seed to, to uh-huh. you know what I mean? I was like wondering if maybe that was a twist they were going to do. And yeah. then I, I don't know how that would have worked with the once or story. Uh, and, stuff. No. and I was like, that doesn't really make sense. So I like kind of was like, and eventually I was like, no, I'm pretty sure that's just the once but they again, there was enough details about it that felt yeah. kind of strange. Like, why are that's they keeping kind, it in that's shadow? Kind why of are a they... weird red herring. If yeah. that's what they were trying to no, do. No, I agree. It doesn't because it doesn't go. It doesn't really mean anything yeah. or go anywhere. I but I did agree because he sounded a little bit like he was doing a weird thing with his voice. Like it just mm-hmm. all added up to him. Like, is that like is that the Lorax or what's going on here? No, it's definitely not the Lorax. I agree though. It was it was strange. Uh, there was a couple of lines in the movie. Uh, there was one point where the Onesler says he finishes making the thneed and then he says nothing unmanly about knitting. And w- uh, there's a lot to unpack there, but <laughs> but also he was sewing. 
He wasn't knitting. Oh, was he? I and I, I'm, I'm like that. That must be a joke, right? Because there's no way that made it through all of the rounds of everything without somebody being like, "He's not so. He's not knitting. He's sewing." But it isn't funny. So, like, I, is it a I joke? Like, that's, I don't know what the I don't know what the joke would be. I don't know what the angle is. Like, yeah. if that is a joke. But he he is he does knit it in the book. They very clearly show him knitting, but then okay. in the movie he's sewing, but he says that he's knitting. Is it a mistake or is it a joke? I I don't know. I I I missed I, I didn't see I was must have been writing something, so I didn't see him sewing. So I I, I just assumed <laughs> when I heard that line, because I did I do remember yeah. that line. I just assumed we saw him knitting it. So I was like, oh, it didn't even strike me as a joke, because again, I didn't see that he was sewing. I have no idea. I have no. I have no answer for it. Because again, it's not a joke that I don't. Yeah. I don't or at least I don't understand. I don't what know the, what the joke. What would the joke be. would be there. <laughs> so I have no but idea. I don't know how that would line would make it through every everything everything without somebody at some point being like. Are you sure he didn't knit it for a while and then do something at the end to finish sew it like I we saw or something? I'm like, 99% positive the only thing we do is see him do is sew. Okay. Because he's got a needle and thread. Okay. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> like I said, I, didn't, I don't remember seeing it, so I don't, I don't know. Um, our, my other uh, line was just kind of a woof. Yeah. It's just um, when uh, when the one source family shows up and it's like his, his great aunt, aunt, or, aunt or, something or something like yeah. that, um, who's like a crotchety old woman. Yeah. Um, and the one source says to the Lorax, like, you wouldn't hit a woman. And, and the, uh, the Lorax is like, that's a, woman. that's a woman. Yeah. Woof, you guys. Yeah. You know, those jokes were funny in 2012, <laughs> apparently. I guess. Um, Our society has deemed them funny. <laughs> uh, the parts about uh, when he has to send away all of the animals I thought were better in the book. Um, at the at the end of the movie, they all just kind of leave at the same time. In the book, he sends them away, like each group of animals, he sends them away like one by one, like off to find a better habitat. Um, and there's more like specific notes about like, um, well, the, the barbaloots have to leave because you, there's not enough food to go around because they get the food from the oh, truffula so, like, trees. As and, certain things are, yeah, like as, as things are progressing of the, of the environment are ruined, different animals yeah, need, okay. Different yeah. animals have yeah, to vacate sense, the premises. Yeah. yeah. It definitely, I think that would have been good to see too, because it also mm -hmm. adds to, um, kind of the, the Wunzler's like self you know like like ignoring yeah. the problem is like if we s keep seeing these animals having to leave slowly over time and like it it it, it amplifies his negligence i yeah. guess whereas at the end it's like oh surprise oh, oh and now all the animals gotta leave i mean it's it's not that different like obviously you should have known that cutting down every tree in this like again it's not that big of a difference but i do think that it is that is an effective narrative beat to have like this growing mm -hmm. sort of ominous like and and now more and more and more animals are are being displaced um my last note here um in general i think the movie's frame narrative is a little underdeveloped uh, it doesn't not work but uh none of the characters aside from ted are really developed at all i thought the world building was just like a little surface level and i didn't think the stakes ever felt that high yeah, no, I would agree with that. I mainly because we don't spend that much time with any of the other characters. I did really like 
like I thought Audrey was basically nothing. Like she's yeah. just like not in the movie yeah. mostly. Um, but I did like his mom and mm-hmm. the grandma. Yeah, uh, and I think ba- both of those have to do with the performances because it's Jenny Slate plays his mom mm-hmm. and um, Betty White yeah. plays yeah, yeah, his grandma, yeah. and I thought they were both really good and fun. Like I enjoyed his mom's performance a lot, but I, I would agree that it's not it's not a super well developed. It, it serves its purpose, but it's not like yeah, it super like it, it works, or or, but yeah. it's just just like a wee bit underbaked. Yeah, no, I agree. Which is kind of my opinion on the movie as a whole. So generally. <laughs> Despite the stuff I really like about it. All right. Time to find out what Katie thought was better in the movie. My life has taught me one lesson, Hugo, and not the one I thought it would. Happy endings only happen in the movies. Um, the first time that Ted goes outside of the walls of the town um, and we he comes across uh, and like almost runs into we see like the shadowy broken down axe machines yes and he like almost yeah gets decapitated yeah yeah um and that's something like those those weird like multiple chopping machines are something that we do see in the book mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i thought that was a fun addition yeah i, I thought it was cool because you see it and you're like what the heck is this and then later during the flashback we actually see it mm-hmm. running and operating and you're like oh that's what that was yeah I thought the Lorax trying to get rid of the one slur was interesting. Uh, like the scene where they f- try to float his bed down the river. Um, although I could have done without fish mission impossible. Yeah, there was, <laughs> there's quite a bit in this movie that I found kind of grating and, mm-hmm. and poorly aged, not from like an offensive or like, oof, what are we like? There are a couple things like mainly really only that like, yeah, that's a man line it was like the only thing that really stuck out to me. I was like, oh, all right. But just more like aged poorly in the sense of which, which is, I think Illumination is guilty of more than maybe mm-hmm. like Pixar and some other, you know, other like animation studios of, of like. Not that, uh, to be fair, Mission Impossible was not a timely reference in 2012 necessarily. <laughs> um, but, like, it, 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 they do that kind of stuff, I think, more often yeah. that feels like well, and I mean, pop and culture reference in a way that's that like... Ugh. You're using a pop culture reference that's already tired. Yeah. Like, people are already sick Yeah, we've it. already made the, the like, done the, like, Mission Impossible. Like, yeah. the Mission Impossible soundtrack when somebody's doing, like, a, a sneaky thing was, like, played out in, like... The it was, early it was 2000s. played out when was Shrek 2 did yeah, it. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, like it's so uh, it's it's it had been played out for like at least you know close to 10 years at this point, mm-hmm. maybe not 10 years, but close to it at this point. And we're doing, yeah, and there's like a handful of those kind of things throughout the movie where it's just like I could do without that. <laughs> yeah, um, you mentioned earlier that Audrey had a, a mural of Truffy Latrice paint painted on like the back of her house. I liked the moment where she goes in the backyard and sees that her mural has been sloppily painted over courtesy of O'Hare air. Yeah, it's got a big sticker that says courtesy of O'Hare yeah. or whatever. I liked that the Onceler's family was really obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. Um, his family does show up to help him in the book, but oh. we don't ever like interact with them. Um, so I, I liked that they were just really, really obnoxious. Yeah. I like the little scene where we show how the the Onesler's actions paved the way for O'Hare. Mm-hmm. Um, after his business goes bust, we see um, O'Hare as working as like a janitor or That's something. Like a kid, I assume. Yeah. He's got braces, so he's supposed mm-hmm. to be fairly young. And yeah, there and and his partner's like, I wonder what the next billion dollar ideal. Yeah, be like as he coughs from inhaling smog. Yeah, and we see like the little light bulb go off in O'Hare's eyes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was fun. Yeah, I, I liked that a lot. 
Um, and I also liked uh, at the end when they're trying to find some dirt to plant the tree. The way that they the way they find the dirt is by beheading the statue of O'Hare. Yes, and like knocking a big crack in the the fake ground. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All right, we got uh, quite a few things that the movie nailed. As I expected, practically perfect in every way. Um, so Audrey, when we're first talking to her, she describes trees as softer than silk and they smelled of butterfly milk, which is the description of truffula trees from the book. Uh, in the in the prequel episode, a critic was like mad. Yeah, that, the critic hated that. That well, hated that they quoted it, and then another character goes, "What does that even mean?" And they're like, "I don't know." Like, kind of like making fun of it. Um, I thought it was fine. I thought like, I, I didn't. I, I didn't get the vibe that they were making fun I, of it. I, like, yeah, they're they're pointing a little bit fun at the fact that it's like, yeah, a little you know, fanciful and silly. But like, I don't know. I didn't. Whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a weird thing to nitpick in a movie of, like, other things that you could have nitpicked. It just seemed like a... Yeah. uh, Especially because the movie, I think, does a fairly good job of staying true to, like, the message of the... It's not like the movie, like, perverts the the message and then also, like, makes fun of his prose. It's just, like, they're kind of, like, pointing... I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so the the another thing that the movie nails is the description of where the Onceler lives um, at the edge of town where the grickle grass grows. Uh, the payment that Ted has to provide in order to see the Onceler, oh, like man. a 15 cents and a nail in the shell of a great grandfather's nail yes. or something like that. Uh, he also lives on the street of the lifted Lorax. That's from the book. What is I don't remember that. What is that? Is that uh, like what it's called? Yeah, like, what that's is the that? name of the street that the Onceler lives on? Is the street of the lifted Lorax? Okay. Uh, also, the Onceler. I guess like, named for when the Lorax yeah, when leaves he picks and lifts himself, himself up. up. Okay. And yeah, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, the Onceler's a uh, weird house that kind of looks like like the burrow yes, from Harry Potter. Like very much yeah. like it. Well, and I liked that it seems like because he had this gigantic factory mansion thing mm-hmm. and that over time as he, he sort of pared it down to like yeah. a much more minimal, you know, less extravagant uh, lodging. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we, the first thing that we see of the Onceler is the just his eyes through the boarded up window and then the, the green gloves. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also all of we see for the rest of the book. But the movie did nail that initial like visual yeah oh the scene where the onceler is tossing everything out of his wagon is from the book the word biggering they mention i think a couple times in the song uh that is directly from the book that's something that the onceler says all the time he's biggering his business Mm. um which is interesting because it reminds me of trump Yes. Like, yeah, it really does. Yeah. How how did that? Yeah. Wild. <laughs> like, did Doctor Seuss just predict that? Yeah. I don't. <laughs> or, or Trump read the lore action, did not understand. The, <laughs> he just seems very. He just likely. latched onto that one word. <laughs> yeah. Which he, he said, uh, "Bigly." Right? Bigly, was, Bigly his was his thing. thing yeah. Uh, the with the way that the Onceler's um, business comes crumbling down, where he's like, "Nothing's gonna stop me," and then, boom, they immediately chop down the last truffula tree. Mm-hmm. And we already talked about those. Uh, Lorax lifts himself by his pants, flies mm-hmm. off through a hole in the smog, um, and then the line, 
unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. There you go. So quite a few things that the movie nailed. We got a couple things to talk about in odds and ends before we get to the final verdict. I thought it was interesting that they gave Mr. O'Hare the Farquaad haircut. Yes. It's kind of a like blockier version of it. It also reminded but... me of what's her name from The Incredibles. Yeah. Mode. Yeah, Edna she's mode. kind of, yeah, it's it's like kind of an Edna mode. Kind of that very like blunt bob with the bangs. With the part in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I the, the gag in this movie where he's like trying to get to the find the once learn he comes to this like big ravine and then he sets up a ramp and then goes to ride his little unicycle thing over mm-hmm. it and then immediately falls off the cliff it got me i saw it coming from a mile <laughs> away but i chuckled i don't know what it was about that uh a little detail that i thought was very funny is the the billionaire guy o'hare he has mm-hmm. these henchmen and when he gets in and out of his car, they don't like lift him up and put it in because he's tiny. Yeah. And th- instead of like lifting him up, which would be the easy joke is like they like pick him up and put him in the car or like pick him up yeah. and put him out, which is like, sure, that would still be fine. But they literally they use their hands to create like stairs for him mm-hmm. <laughs> as as he like goes up. They like move their hands and create like a, a moving staircase. I thought that detail was very good. <laughs> I have to say that Danny DeVito is great casting for the Lorax. No, I think he's fantastic. Uh, Danny DeVito basically is the Lorax. Yep. So <laughs> yeah. it works. Yeah, it totally works. Uh, I, I thought it was funny that they did the floating bed prank, like in the parent trap. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about in parent trap when they put in the movie where they put the, uh, what's they, her name? The evil uh, girlfriend Meredith. out they in the lake and the float her out on her, on on her mattress. inflatable mattress. Yeah. And in this, they, they put him down the river. They put, uh, the one down the river on his mattress, yeah. which I thought was funny. Uh, I will say, uh, you know, apart from obviously the, the mission impossible gag, but just, so this is a musical movie and I thought most of the music in this has not aged amazingly. Yeah. In the sense that it's kind of just like really mediocre pop, of from of circa 2012 yeah like i thought the end song was okay like that one had aged the best whatever that final big number is because mm-hmm. then that turns into the credit song kind of it's something like grow something yeah something about it, growing letting letting the let seed it grow, grow or something yeah. like that yeah i thought that one was okay and it aged pretty well uh which is funny because i do think that uh a lot of the songs were written they were co-written by two people. And one of them was Cinco Paul, who was the writer on this, who wrote all of the music for uh, Schmigadoon. Yeah. So he's the showrunner and writer on Schmigadoon, but he also writes all the music for Schmigadoon. And I think what would have worked really well is if they had chosen like for this, if they had, if he had gone back and done, cause he's really good at like aping mm-hmm. like pre-existing musical stuff, which is what Schmigadoon is. It's just, if you haven't seen it, they each season they go through like different eras of musicals and there are songs that are, some of them are very specifically like this is basically cell block tango or whatever yeah. from, but then there are other ones that are more kind of broad, like, yeah, like broad strokes, broad strokes. Like this kind of captures the essence of rent um, or yeah. whatever, or not rent, but like, cause I haven't gotten to that or area, like but like the essence of Jesus the, the 1950s or, movie yes. musical or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, and so I think that movie, this movie would have benefited if they had gone that direction and mm-hmm. like chosen an older 
genre of like musical kind of to like mm. base the music around instead of just trying to write contemporary pop songs. Yeah. I think maybe. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you could have made it worse by doing True. that. So again, I didn't hate <laughs> any of the songs, but I also didn't really like any of the They're songs. They're just forgettable. Yeah. Whereas the I really like a lot of the music in Schmigadoon. I think it's really mm-hmm. fun and good. Um, you know, for what it is. Uh whereas this I was just like, eh. So but also, you know, this is a decade ago. He's probably learned a lot about writing music right. <laughs> and musical numbers <laughs> since then. So uh, I thought there was a very fun detail when the Onceler is walking through his big, uh, vast, evil estate. Uh, he has a too big to fail poster on his wall. Yeah. It's a picture of him and it says too big to fail. Yeah. Or nice not very far removed from 2008. Yes. No, we're very close to the. Yeah. yeah and especially like recession. when they were like writing it and conceptualizing yes. it. And... Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I had a thought at the end of this movie, which was that I wonder if his grandma is somewhere in that original group of townspeople, like all of the people who come to get a sneed in that one number. Oh, like as a little girl, probably. Yeah. I didn't think to look because why would I? But then at the end, she says that she remembers right, trees. Yeah. So she could be like somewhere in that group of people. And she's probably about the age the Onceler is yeah. at the end of the movie. So, yeah, she probably was in there and we just missed it. That probably is a little Easter, not Easter egg, but that probably like is. Like a little detail. detail yeah. And if it's not, that's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so apart from the music, which I wasn't a huge fan of, I think the movie's other biggest weakness is that it isn't very funny. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with that. It's a pretty serviceable movie. It looks pretty good uh, if you don't mind the style of it's it's the illumination yeah. style, which I'm not the biggest fan of. It's not very memorable or unique yeah. or interesting. It's, it's very it's very bright yes. and very like smooth and looking. round and yeah. plasticky and like it's fine. Like it looks fine. Uh, and so like it looks okay, but it's just not particularly funny for like an yeah. animated kids adventure movie. Like if you're comparing this to something like I mean, obviously something like Toy Story or whatever, but even some lesser like Pixar movies, mm-hmm. I would say this isn't even like that. It doesn't even hold up to some of the lesser offerings from some of the other animation studios in terms of humor. I, I like I said, I liked the 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 gag where he falls off the ramp, and I that was like the only time I chuckled at the whole mm-hmm. movie. Maybe I'm sure there was a couple other moments, but it just. Just really wasn't that funny, which yeah. was disappointing. I if you have uh, little kids, let us know. Yeah, maybe let, kids maybe let, let us know if your know. kids think this movie's a laugh and a half. Yeah. I just didn't like. There weren't even that many like jokes. In That's it, what I, I mean. Felt yeah. like. It didn't even feel like they were trying to make it yeah. that funny, which was interesting. Like, and again, I don't think they need. I, I'm glad they at least didn't go overboard with like you know like referential humor and stuff. Right. Like, which could have been really bad. Oh, that, that, yeah, that could have uh, been really sour. You know, like they didn't go overboard with that, which was good. But also just it, I think it could have used some more jokes. <laughs> like yeah. I just think it needed some more <laughs> uh, some more humor to really kind of punch it up and make it a little more memorable. I did have to chuckle, though, that the end of the movie is basically the nature is healing itself meme. Yes, <laughs> it, it really is. Yeah, absolutely. And then my last note, which it blew my mind. We got to the end of the movie. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> Especially because the end number, I was yeah. watching. Yeah. I was watching for this. And I was like, did Taylor Swift legitimately not sing a single note in this movie yeah. musical? Yeah. 
And I don't think she did. I, maybe I, as part of a the court. Like, maybe as part of the ensemble. But like she does not get a like a single like her well, own. Everybody moment. else has their own verse in yeah. the last song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't even realize that until you said something at the end of the movie. But yeah. Like, how are you going to hire one of the biggest pop stars in the world and not have her sing a single solitary note in your movie musical? Blew my mind. I was like, wait a second. Was that like in her contract? Was she I like, may I'm be. not going to sing? She was in like around this time period. She was in a handful of movies and she might have been trying to branch out. Right. To be, and like, be like an actor. Yeah, I'm an not, actress. I like, don't want to just be the person in your movie to sing because that I'm, you know, a famous pop star. Yeah, I don't know. It just was very funny to me that I was like, wait, I don't think she sang at all. Like you would think for sure they I it's wild too because you you would think they would have for sure if and it almost feels like it would have had to be a thing where she was like I don't want to sing because it seems very obvious to me that if I'm making this movie and I cast Taylor Swift as the yeah. female lead basically yeah. kind of I mean again she's not in that much of the movie because it's it's mainly about the Onceler's backstory and then Ted but you know, she's essentially ostensibly the female lead in the movie that they would have written a song specifically right. for her. Or you're her. at least going to give her a line in your in your final at number. At least, but I'm not just doing that. I'm getting yeah. us her uh, writing a song for her that we can yeah. hopefully sell. And maybe that's like, like I'm saying, I'm writing a song that is like hopefully going to be a breakout like the song right. from this movie. Yeah, this it's going to be this movie's Let It Go. It's, right. It's going to get radio like play. That. Yeah, something like <laughs> that. And my only guess is that she was like, no. Yeah. And her, her agent imagine, was like, no. Imagine hiring Taylor Swift to be in your animated movie <laughs> musicals and then her lawyers are like, yeah, Miss Swift does not sing in the movies. Yeah. And you're like, wait a second. That's the reason we hired her. <laughs> Which again, I, I get it. I, I get her not wanting, you know, I, I'm not even necessarily like, um, I get if that is what it was, if she was like, I, I you know, I don't want to. Yeah, that's her choice. Yeah, it's fine. I, I, and I understand, you know, wanting to branch out and stuff like that. It is just kind of funny at the same time. It's like, well, okay, it's a musical and like yeah. you're one of the main characters. Like you got to at least sing a verse. Like it's just <laughs> weird if you don't. Not even like regardless of who you were, it's a little weird that your character is not right, singing at yeah. all. And the, you know, it's just, yeah. Just thought it was funny. Before we get to the final verdict, we wanted to remind you, you can do us a giant favor by heading over to patreon.com slash this film is lit. Support us there for a few bucks a month. Get access to bonus content. We just released. Well, it's actually it's not out. It'll be out uh, this weekend. Uh, probably tomorrow uh, or not. Probably Friday as you're listening to this. Some point in the next few days as you're listening to this, uh, we recorded our bonus episode on Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl. So if mm -hmm. you want to hear what we had to say about that, uh, we both love that movie. It's one of our favorite action adventures. So if you would like to hear us discuss that, that'll be out very shortly. Or if you're listening to this in the future, it's already out. Just head over to patreon.com slash this film is lit. Give us $5 a month and you can listen to that bonus episode in the backlog of all of our bonus episodes. You can also support us for $15 a month to get access to Priority Recommendation, whereas if you have a book or a movie that you would love for us to talk about, just go ahead and uh, recommend it. Support us for 15 bucks a month and stick around a little bit, and we'll do it eventually once we can fit it in as soon as we can. Uh, you can also do us a giant favor if you don't want to support us on Patreon by giving us a five-star rating and review on whatever podcast catcher you listen to us on, and also by heading over to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Goodreads. And following, liking, whatever you got to do to see our posts and interact <laughs> with them so we can hear what you have to say about the Lorax. But first, Katie, it's time for your final verdict. 
Now, <laughs> are you ready for your sentence? Sentence? But there must be a verdict first. Sentence first. Verdict afterward. The book, The Lorax, is a mainstay of children's literature, a subversive classic that tackles an important social issue while also being a textbook example of Seussian style in both art and prose. The movie is perfectly fine. And I mean that. I, there's not really anything wrong with this film. I found it a little boring and occasionally grating, but I acknowledge that I'm not the target audience. Then again, I'm also not the target audience for the book, and I found it just as impactful at 33 as I did at 5. The main changes that the movie makes to the book are beefing up the frame narrative, as well as the center narrative, albeit to a somewhat lesser degree. And I don't have any major qualms with the choices that the movie made in order to do that. However, I don't think the story needs any of that extra meat to be meaningful and make an impact. Although the movie expands on the theme somewhat and adds other elements that play well with the existing narrative, none of it is necessary. And even within the past decade since the movie came out, I think it's already obvious that the movie just doesn't have the staying power of the book. To quote my own final verdict from our, our review of 2000's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, I don't think it's been elevated into something that's better than the book. It's a fun supplement to the book, but I wouldn't call it a good alternative to it. And for that reason, I have to give this one to the book. There you go. Very good stuff. Katie, what's up next? Up next, we are closing out our summer series 2023 yes. with the final installment of the Divergent series. Yep. Allegiant. There you go. And it's singular movie. Singular movie, <laughs> which we will discuss in the next prequel episode. Yeah. Obviously, uh, if you don't know, there's uh, there one was, movie. There's supposed, supposed to be, to be two. two. There's only one. Uh, so we're just going to do one episode covering the whole book and the one movie they made. Obviously, be a little tough. We'll we'll figure it out. Yeah. But uh, we'll talk more about that in the next prequel episode. Uh, and we'll also hear what you all had to say about the Lorax. So if you have feelings about the Lorax adaptation or the book or just the movie or whatever, and you got something you want to say, make sure you get on over to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever, Goodreads, and uh, let us know so we can talk about that in one week's time on our prequel episode to Allegiant. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.